You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. And how can we know that we're in Christ? We've been looking at that over the past weeks. And tonight we come to 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through chapter 4, verse 6. Actually, I'm going to back up and begin our text at chapter 3, verse 19. Pew, Pew Bible, page 863, if you want to use that. Let us hear God's Word, 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 and following. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, give us insight as we look and seek to behold wondrous things from your word. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. A new Christian who professed faith in Jesus Christ in high school, going to a local youth group, goes to college and finds his faith severely tested, both by the temptations to immorality on every side and by intellectual assaults on his faith by some of his professors and by some of his fellow students. A wife and mother of three children finds herself struggling with guilt over past sins earlier in her life, and she wrestles with whether God is really a loving Father who accepts her in Christ, or is He a harsh judge who is punishing her in some way for her past sins. A father loses his wife and infant child in a tragic car crash, and he struggles with whether the Bible is true in what it teaches about God's sovereignty and God's love. And he finds his faith in Christ is deeply tested through this severe trial. These are just three of many scenarios in which genuine Christians struggle with assurance. 
In fact, to some degree or another, every Christian has times when he or she struggles with doubts of some kind. It may not be doubt about the actual existence of God or the person and work of Christ, whether he really came, whether he was really God, whether he was really rose, whether he really rose again, although there may be those may be areas of doubt in a Christian's life. But it is very common for Christians to have questions about assurance, especially in view of their own struggles with remaining sin and seeing the weaknesses and inconsistencies of their own walk with Jesus Christ. Well, as I've said, the letter of 1 John is a great gift from God, and it helps us in our weak and often troubled assurance. And this passage before us speaks to us in our need. And we want to look tonight at what this text tells us about Christian assurance and the Holy Spirit's work in keeping us to God and helping us in this area of knowing we are in a right standing with God through Jesus Christ. What do we learn from this text about the Spirit and assurance and this area of growing in assurance? Well, the first thing we want to see is the problem of assurance and the beginning of an answer, the problem of assurance and the beginning of an answer. We see this in verses 19 and 20 of 1 John 3. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. The problem that we see in these verses is that there are times, the apostle says, when our hearts condemn us. How do we set our hearts at rest in His presence, in God's presence, whenever our hearts condemn us? Part of the purpose of this passage is to heal the wounded and condemning conscience, because every Christian knows that the Christian still wrestles with sin. Well, why do our hearts condemn us, we might ask? Well, obviously, because we sin, and there's a right condemnation. There's a right conviction of sin that is part of Christian life and experience, and that's why in our worship services we regularly have a time of confession of our sin. And we have a printed prayer many times. We get responses from folks often that they really take comfort and hope from those printed prayers that we pray, those prayers of confession, because they express the wrestling, the struggle, the fight Christians experience in our daily life and walk with God, that we fall into sin, that we not only fall into sin, but we desire wrong things. Our hearts are many times wrong. So there is a right sense in which our hearts condemn us, but the Apostle John here, I think, is speaking about something that needs right assurance, and and certainly they're related subjects, but there are times when our hearts condemn us when they shouldn't condemn us. Our hearts are not always right. Our consciences are always not according to God's Word. But also, our hearts often condemn us even when we have already confessed our sin and know we're forgiven in Christ because Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he loves 
to bring up sin to Christians and to beat them down with it and to make them think they can't lift up their hearts to the Lord in prayer and assurance and that we have no right to come to God anymore. He uses it as a weapon to attack us. And I think that's probably in view here as well. But whatever the slight difference might be in in why we are feeling condemned and whether Satan's attacking us or whether it's sin that we've already confessed or not, there is a need to, to have rest in the presence of God, to have confidence before God. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. And that has to do with right assurance. The problem then is that a condemning heart disrupts our walk with God and often has the effect of sidetracking the assurance that the Christian ought to be experiencing. And I say that part of the answer is given here in verses 19 and 20 because the apostle does point us back to the verses that have right gone, gone right before this and have said, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, he's pointing back to what he's just said and, and summarize it and saying, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. And this, I believe, is part of the, the answer that we've seen as we've studied through First John. And what he's referring back to is the sermon that we had last week about this, was that is that the, the test of love. Tucker York preached on what love is. And he talked about agape love, sacrificial, Christ-like love, which is a, a, an unnatural, we might say, fruit of the Spirit that the natural man does not display. We've seen these three major tests in the, the epistle of John, the test of right belief, the test of right obedience or righteousness, and the test of love for others. And so verse 9 is looking back and saying, I've just talked to you about love. In fact, if you look back to chapter 3, verse 14, we see how he relates the fruit of love to assurance. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love our brothers. He's saying that evidence of love in our lives is an evidence of the work of the Spirit. It's an evidence of the new birth. It's not all that the Bible says about this. That's why I'm saying it's part of the answer. But so what we're seeing is part of the answer to a condemning heart is the evidence of faith in our lives, the evidence of faith that shows up in obedience to God, and the preeminent fruit of obedience is Christ-like love. It's very important. It's not all that Scripture says, but let's stop and think about this. That kind of love or any aspect of Christ-like virtues and righteousness will always be imperfect in this life. So there is a sense in which we will always be looking at our lives and seeing that we fall short of the glory of God. But this verse is telling us don't despise the work of the Spirit in producing Christ-likeness in us to some degree. Don't despise this. It is the work of the Spirit. In fact, in verse 24 of 1 John 3, we see John summarizing what he said here, and he says, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. 
In other words, he's saying these are spirit-imparted graces and virtues. It's the Spirit who brings us about. He links the fruit of the Spirit to the Spirit of God. It reminds me, in a sense, of what, what Paul says in Romans 8, and he's talking about putting to death sin in our lives. And in, and in verse 12, he says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do you know you're a son of God? If you're led by the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? To have some mystical experience and be floating on a cloud somewhere or something like that? No. Being led by the Spirit of God has just been described in putting to death sin in your life. A very practical evidence of that. That you're fighting and warring against sin. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit, Paul says, are the sons of God, children of God. That's, that's an evidence of the Spirit's work. It's the same kind of thing that John is saying in 1 John 3. So the problem of assurance here is that every Christian, to some degree, and at various times in his or her life, is wrestling with assurance, wrestling with a heart that condemns in some way and needs to have a healthy and biblical assurance. Part of that assurance is looking at what the Spirit has done. But this brings me to our second main point, and that is this. An even more basic part of assurance is found in God Himself and His mercy to us in Christ. So yes, look at love, look at the fruit of love in your life and be encouraged by that even though it falls short in many ways. But an even more basic part of assurance is rooted in God Himself. And it's so encouraging that this is the case. It's rooted in God and His great mercy to us. I think that the apostle points at this in this direction at the end of verse 20 when he concludes this part with saying, For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Now, Commentators differ about what's being referred to here. Why this reference here to God is greater than our hearts. Now, we know that God's greater than our hearts. We know that He sees us. He knows everything about us. Why is there this reference here? Sometimes Scripture refers to the greatness and the omniscience of God as a warning to us. He, he searches our hearts, he, he with whom we have to do. His word pierces to the depths of our being. And in a sense, it's a warning many times to say, don't think that you can keep something secret from God. If you're holding some sin in your heart and you're able to hide it from everyone else, you're not hiding it from God. Now, you may think, well, that's not very assuring. Well, that's why I tend to think that that's not the main sense here. Certainly, the Bible does teach that. I think purpose of this reference is to assure us. And it's, it's saying along the lines, our conscience may condemn us, but our conscience is not the final court. Remember in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul talks about that, he, he says, I don't care what you all think of me or judge about me. Uh, and he says, I don't even care that much about what I think of myself. It's God who is the judge. He's pointing to the fact that God is the ultimate judge 
And we could be wrong about ourselves. Others can be wrong about us. Others might misunderstand us. We might be falsely accused, slandered, whatever the case might be. Ultimately, we stand or fall before God. And so it is when we have a condemning heart, we, we might be wrong, we might be right. We certainly should confess our sin to the Lord. But God is the final court. And it's not just a judging God with whom we have to do it's a God who has sent Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. I think that's clearly implicit here as well. This is a great, the God whom John has been describing to us, the God of mercy to us in Christ. And so, God, who knows everything, knows not only about our sin, which may condemn us and beat us down and make us feel like we can't pray, but God also knows our deepest longings our deepest desires, our deepest resolves. Isn't it interesting the way we know that we fall into sin many times? And even when we're sinning sometimes, we know that our deepest desire and deepest longing, if we truly belong to Christ, is to live for the glory of God, to honor Him in every way, to more deeply trust Him when we're falling into unbelief and doubt and weakness of various kinds. And so it's a great encouragement that even in the face of our failure and our sin, God knows everything. It's like Peter said when, when Jesus asked him, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. And Peter felt deeply that he had failed the Lord. But Peter was saying, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. Fundamentally, Peter was a believer. He fundamentally did love the Lord, even though he fell into such grievous sin. And so this, this point is telling us that our ultimate source of assurance lies not in ourselves or in our obedience, but it lies in God and His great mercy. I, I had an experience this week when I failed the test of love. I'm sure I had many times that I failed the test of love this week, but I had somewhat an embarrassing experience. You're all listening now, so you whenever preacher tells you this, then you start to listen, I can tell. But we were going to my son's seminary commencement. You know, that should be an occasion for righteousness, right? But we were running late, and we were going in a couple of different cars because we had grandparents with us and aunts and uncles, and I was taking my daughter, Jennifer, and her daughter, Blythe, who's about six months old, and we were running later than everybody. And we got to Souderton, near in the Philadelphia area where the church is, where the commencement was going to be, and we were uh, cutting it very close. And we came up to the light that was within a stone's throw of the church. You could almost get out and walk, and it turns out, I didn't know at the time, that there was a fender bender at the light. And you know how the light turns red, and it turns green, and like one car goes, and you're in a big long line, you think, what's going on up there? And then it turns red and green. And we sat there through about three cycles of light. And the baby had now awakened in the backseat, was crying. And Jennifer had to get her, you know, she had to be fed and everything. And we were running late. And oh, no. And a car pulls up in the left lane. There was a two lanes on our, in our part. And obviously that was the left turn lane, but they wanted to get in front of me. And they had gone through the light. And you know how those things are. You feel like, play by the rules, buddy. So I kind of... You know, kind of went like this, and, you know, get behind me, you know. I'm not budging. Get back. And it was this, turns out, as I looked over there, it was a sweet 15-year-old girl or 13-year-old girl in the car, kind of like, what's that weird guy doing motioning, you know. And 
Jennifer was next to me. I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I just, you know, but I didn't let them in. I didn't know that it was an accident yet, and they kind of, you know, you know, and I went on my way, and they pulled in behind me, and then I said, boy, I hope they're not coming to the same place. We are. And they were. They turned behind us, and I kind of, you know, shielded my face and dropped Jennifer and the baby off, and I was kind of driving slowly because they were waving everyone to park. I said, I don't want to park near them, you know. Well, I felt badly the rest of the day about that. I tried not to think about it, and certainly it was a failure of love. We can all relate to that. But thanks be to God that even though I failed the test of love there, uh, I stand in grace through Jesus Christ from a God who's greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He knows how self-righteous John Light can be, how, you know, I have to be making sure that people don't cut in front of me. He knows my heart, but he knows even more deeply than that, that my greatest longing is for Jesus to be revealed in me, even though I fall many times. And so the even more basic assurance is found in God and who he is and in his great mercy to us in Christ and that we stand in the gospel. And even when the evidence part of our assurance is falling by the wayside, we can always come back to the foundation, which is in Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to our third point, and that is this. Biblical assurance leads to a deeper walk with God in prayer. This is what the apostle comes to in verses 21 to 23. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us and we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Biblical assurance results in open and unrestricted communion with God. Because when you see, when our hearts condemn us, the result of that is we feel like we can't pray. We feel like we can't lift up our hearts. Satan wants us to be like that. He doesn't want us to pray. He doesn't want us to enjoy fellowship with God. He wants to make us feel guilty and accused and like we don't, we can't even come to God and we probably are going to go to hell. That's Satan's goal. But the result of assurance If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands. Because we obey his commands is not describing our obedience as something meritorious. As if if we're good enough and obey God's commands well enough, well, then he's got to hear our prayers. As if we kind of deserve to God, have God answer our prayers. It's not a meritorious thing, but it's obedience and walking with God as a condition of answered prayer, as part of the way God works through his word and in our lives. And there are other scriptural conditions of answered prayer. And we, we, we could look at those in depth, praying according to God's will, praying in Christ's name, praying for the glory of God, praying by those who are forgiven by God through Christ and forgiving others in their lives, believing God's promises. All those are conditions for answered prayer. And they don't merit answered prayer from God, but they are all interrelated and have to do with the Christian's walk with God. And we know that walking in obedience with God is connected to desiring to do God's will and having God's will fulfilled in our lives. And so it's a desire for the glory of God. 
They're all interrelated. But John puts this very succinctly in verse 23. And this is his command. Singular uh, case. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. John summing it all up and saying, this is his command. Believe in Jesus Christ. Have faith in Christ. And love others because love is the primary fruit of faith in Christ. He's summing it up for us in that way. And so what we're seeing here is that right and healthy and biblical assurance that's grounded in who God is, grounded in the promises of God and in Christ and in a growing fruitfulness in our lives by the work of the Spirit, that kind of assurance is so good because it increases the level of our communion with God and our life of prayer with God and how important that is that we would have confidence before God, and so we would have lives of fruitful prayer. Is your prayer life in the dumps right now? Maybe it has to do with needing to see to your assurance before God in Christ. Maybe you need to go back to the gospel and realize that you stand as a child, as a daughter, as a son in Christ because of what Jesus Christ did. No merit of your own, nothing you deserve that you're a sinner and you're saved by grace alone, and you need to believe the gospel again. And as many people have said it, preach the gospel to yourself every day or sing some great hymn of the faith that talks about our standing before God in Christ. And that will lift you up with a sense of being able to pray and commune with God and lay before him your needs. And hopefully you will do it in a more God-centered, Christ-oriented way than if your heart condemns you. So we see that assurance is linked to prayer. And our final point is this, and this is from the beginning of chapter 4. One major arena for diligence and the help of the Spirit is the threat of false teaching. One major area for diligence in our lives and for the need of the help of the Spirit is false teaching, which is an ever-present danger in the life of the church. Notice how John addresses this. He goes from verse 24 of chapter 3. We know it is by the Spirit he gave us. He refers to the Spirit, and ultimately it's the Spirit that assures us and sanctifies us. And then he goes to the fact that there is false teaching abounding all around, and we need the help of the Spirit, and we need what the Bible says, to test all these things. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the church that John addressed had the problem of people who would make prophecies or who would teach various things, and often it would be heretical. It would be wrong. It would be leading the church down the wrong road. And he's saying, You need to test all these spirits, whether they are spirits from God or spirits not from God. And then in verse 2 and 3, he gives us the essential doctrinal test to know whether the spirit is from God or not. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 
There's nothing new under the sun. The spirit of Antichrist was at work in John's day. The spirit of Antichrist is very much at work in our day. And the spirit of Antichrist is revealed by this fundamental doctrinal test that the spirit of Antichrist does not declare and affirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in flesh, has come. He did not simply appear somehow when Jesus, the man, was baptized, and he did not somehow mystically disappear before Jesus Christ went to the cross. No, Jesus Christ, from conception to birth to the cross to his resurrection, was the God-man come in the flesh. And that is the doctrinal test that believers then needed to apply. It's the doctrinal test that today we need to apply. And we should take great assurance from this and have great encouragement that God has given us this test, another related test that we can understand truth. We should not be surprised by the constant danger of falsehood and false philosophies on every side. I think of the example, I read an article the other week about the strange alliance that we're seeing in the world between secular humanists and radical Muslims seeming to make alliances often against Christianity. And the point of this article was not a religious article per se, but it was talking about uh, this strange alliance fundamentally being against the exercise of free citizens in a society and that both of them Both of those groups were against, really, free and independent citizens in any society. Well, I would see an even more fundamental agreement between those two groups, and that is neither of them confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that does make strange bedfellows sometimes, because the most fundamental issue in this world is not even free citizens of a society. It's Jesus Christ is Lord or he's not. And it's interesting how groups and nations and individuals who might be deeply different on many areas can form alliances against Jesus Christ, his Lord. That's the test that we have. And this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God always affirms Jesus Christ as Lord. The Spirit has come to glorify Jesus Christ. And then we have this encouragement in verse 4 about this. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, meaning the false teachers, the false prophets, and the antichrists that stand behind them. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Who is the one who is in us? God himself. God, by his spirit, dwells in us. And he is greater than the one who is in the world. Satan and all his hosts, the antichrists who stand against us and stand against the Christ. We are from God and have overcome them. John gives his readers this great encouragement. Yes, you may feel that you are under attack or besieged. You have overcome them them fundamentally because you have the Spirit of God living in you. Verse 5, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Don't we know how much that is true? We see this all around us. I referred earlier to the example of a a high school student graduating and going to college. I know of high school students who have done that very thing that I said, that have professed faith in high school and gone to 
college and struggled greatly with what we see in this verse, the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. And the world acclaims and gives recognition to the viewpoint from the world. Some of you may have been reading about Marvin Olowski's testimony over the past months in World Magazine. Marvin Olowski, who in the early 70s was a college student and was actually a card-carrying communist. That's how far he went. And it's interesting, as the Lord begins to work in his life, all the acclaim and all the respect that the universities that he was working with and in and getting his PhD from, all the honors and acclaim that he was getting from his Marxist views dried up really fast until he was almost despairing of being able to get his PhD at a certain university in Michigan because of the 38 history professors there, only one of them had any, uh, uh, had any kind viewpoint towards someone who had a more conservative viewpoint. And he did, the Lord did use that to enable him to get his PhD. But it was interesting, I thought, as you read Marvin Olowski's testimony, this, this, what we're seeing in verse 5 just pops out at you. They speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. That may be the case. That's the atmosphere in which you and I live. We have to deal with that. We have to know that that's the way it's going to be. But verse 4, don't forget that. That, that you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But Paul goes from verse 4 to speaking of you, and verse 5, speaking of they, those who are false. But then in verse 6, he comes to we, and we have to ask, who is the we there? We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Doesn't that sound like an arrogant thing to say? He's speaking with an apostolic we here. He's not referring here to Christians in general. He's referring to himself as one of the apostles. And he's saying, we the apostles are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. He's speaking about the apostolic testimony. He's speaking about, really, the written word of God now for us. We have the written word of God. And as we think about assurance, we keep coming back to the fact that our assurance is based on God's word. And this is greatly under attack in our day as well. I was speaking to a young seminary student that even just this week, he doesn't go to Westminster Seminary, the seminary won't be named, but it's an evangelical school. And he came and talked to me and told me about an Old Testament professor he has this semester who's an adjunct professor. And it seems that all this professor wants to do is tear down the Bible as God's inerrant and inspired word. He's leveling all his guns and he's trying to get all the students to just see how contradictory the Bible is. And this is someone who apparently claims to be an evangelical, who claims to know Christ. But he is tearing down the apostolic testimony of God's word. And he's being of the world in the fact that he's doing that. And so we see here that we are in a battle. We have the battle internally in our own insurance, an assurance from God, but we also have it externally as we live in a world that is fundamentally opposed to Jesus Christ, the Lord. I don't know how that battle registers in your life this week. Maybe it's in the area of assurance. Maybe for you, you need to step back and say, why is it that my communion with God has seemed to have dried up? 
Is it because my heart condemns me? Do I need to go back to the gospel and drink deeply from it? Or maybe for you, it's some particular sin you need to turn away from. Confess to the Lord that you've been holding on to. Maybe it has to do with this area of false teachers possibly leading you astray. And maybe uh, you've been considering some philosophy of the world that has been beguiling you. And and you just see it undermining your faith in Christ. And you need to come back to God's word, which is the truth. And you need to, to know the work of the Spirit in your life, bringing and illuminating God's word to you and helping you to stand in the truth. Whatever your particular testing or trial this week, remember that it is the Lord ultimately who keeps us and that he is at work in our lives. He is greater than our hearts and we stand in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you for the work of your spirit and giving us assurance and lifting us up and helping us in the daily battle against our own indwelling sin and against Satan's attacks and against the world that would lead us astray. We thank you that you've not left us defenseless. We thank you that you've given us the whole armor of God to take up and to stand in. We thank you for the gracious and merciful work of the Spirit of God day after day who lovingly works in us and works through us and keeps us. And we thank you for the precious gift of your holy word that is a light to our path. And we pray that you would help us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power this week as we walk with you through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's turn to our final hymn, number 338.